0: How many of you have heard of the unforgivable sin, also known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It comes from this single statement of Jesus' recorded right here. In Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Truly and solemnly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven unto the sons of men, and whatever abusive and blasphemous things they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never get forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation for they that is the Pharisees they kept saying that he has an unclean spirit you don't catch it in the English but in the original Greek the word translated say implies continually saying it's present tense active in other words they persisted in saying he has an unclean spirit Matthew's record of that statement is in Matthew chapter 12 verses 31 to 32 It records that Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, all manner of every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not and cannot be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Either in this world and age, or in the world and age to come. Okay, let's slow down and take a look at this. The unforgivable sin, also known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it comes from this single statement of Jesus' recorded right here. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the entire Bible. It's right here and only here. If something is extremely important, the Bible usually talks all about it throughout the entire bandwidth of the text, from Genesis to Revelation, right? Right? John 3.16 is not the only place in the Bible that the doctrine of John 3.16 is found. It's all throughout the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke. It's saturated throughout the entire book of John. That's what Romans is all about, Galatians, Ephesians, the whole New Testament. And the more you understand John 3.16, you discover that it's not just a New Testament concept either. You'll find it sprinkled out all throughout the Old Testament. It's cryptic, but with the hindsight of the New Testament, it's crystal clear, whether you're talking about the scenario with Abraham and Isaac or several other things. What about the end times? That's pretty important. It's not just in Revelation. It's in First and Second Thessalonians, Jude, all throughout Matthew, especially Matthew 24. It's in Malachi, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. What about prayer? The whole Bible covers that, especially the book of Psalms. That whole book is a collection of prayers. And what about sin in general? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, go all the way up to Revelation. The whole Bible talks about sin. But of all the sins that it devotes so much attention to, you would think it would spend more time talking about the one sin that Jesus himself has called unforgivable. Folks, that's scary. We take a lot of comfort in the doctrine of the cross. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We take comfort in that doctrine. And we take comfort in the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in God's grace. That's what Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians is all about. And no matter how bad we screw up, grace is sufficient enough to cover that screw up so we can pick ourselves back up and move on. No reason to dwell on it. John's letters point that out. Just confess it to the Lord in prayer. He knows all about it anyway. Just confess it, repent of it, and move on. The letter to the Hebrews says the same thing and adds that we don't have to be afraid of doing that because we have a God who understands and shares in our feelings of weakness to the assaults of temptation because it says Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, but without sinning. So we can boldly and without fear and without guilt approach the throne of grace. That's in the book of Hebrews. We read all of that and take comfort in that, but then we hear of one particular sin called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's a sin that Jesus himself said is unforgivable. We hear about that and get scared because we start to wonder, have we committed that sin? Have we committed the unforgivable sin? Boy, I hope not. We know it's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but that's all we know about it. What does that mean? We know what the Holy Spirit is, and we know what blasphemy is. But how does one blaspheme the Holy Spirit? people have come up with all kinds of definitions of what they think it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The most famous one that I've heard that hurts more people than anything else is the view that committing suicide is the unforgivable sin. They say it's unforgivable because it's the only sin that you can commit in which there's no time to repent because you're dead. But that's not true, first of all, because you can repent of a sin while you're committing it. That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. Paul thoroughly hammered that one down. It's kind of a weird idea of repenting of a sin while you're committing it, but Romans chapter 7 gets into all of that. And second of all, repentance itself is a confusing topic. If you're saved, that means you've repented of all your sins, past, present, and future. You're acknowledging that you're a sinful, imperfect, fallen creature that needs God's grace. Being saved doesn't mean you've decided to be perfect from now on. That's arrogant. But the main reason why people say suicide is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is because the human body of the Christian is called the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they say by committing suicide, you're destroying the temple of the Holy Spirit, which in turn is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But if you're going to go down that line of reasoning, then dying of lung cancer after smoking cigarettes for 50 years or dying of a heart attack after eating fried foods for 50 years is also blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Are they going to hell? Well, Josh, that's a little different because that takes longer. So what? If anything, that makes it even worse. Someone who commits suicide sins only for a moment with a lapse in judgment. If you die of lung cancer or heart disease from smoking or eating fried foods for 50 years, then that means you've spent 50 years continually blaspheming the Holy Spirit with plenty of time to change things. So your little slice of hell is going to be even worse. That is, if you're going to go down that line of thinking. When Christians get a tattoo, that's just like painting graffiti on the temple walls of the Holy Spirit. Are those people going to hell? Of course not. Blasphemy against the temple of the Holy Spirit is not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit itself. Otherwise, every sin in the entire Bible would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because all sins are committed by the flesh. Aren't they? And when Jesus brought up blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here in Matthew and Mark, nobody here in this scenario has committed suicide. So instead of making stuff up, let's actually look at this passage, look at its context, and see what this means. Mark chapter 3, verse 30. Jesus said, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit can never get forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now that's the first thing I want you to notice. It says they can never get forgiveness. It doesn't say that they won't get it. It says they can't get it. In other words, there is something that is in the way preventing forgiveness from getting through. Is that a fair assessment of that? It doesn't say God doesn't forgive that sin. It says that it can't be forgiven. And then it says, for they, that is the Pharisees, persisted in saying, he has an unclean spirit. So those who have rejected the suicide view, who actually crack open the Bible to see what it says, will turn to this verse and then from this make the assumption that verbally saying something out loud that insults the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that is a sin that is unforgivable and that even the cross won't cover it. And that's the traditional view of what this means. But folks, if that's what the unforgivable sin is, it doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any rational sense and yet that's what it sounds like it means when you look at these verses right here in front of us and don't look anywhere else to find confirmation. See, that's how we Christians today read our Bibles. It sits somewhere closed until we have a question. Then we do a Google search for our particular question, find out where the relevant passage is. Then we turn to those few verses, read them and say, Aha, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is verbally saying something out loud that insults the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's what it means. But folks, if that's what this means, then why is this the only place in the entire Bible that it appears? I mean, we're talking about people's souls. We're talking about their eternity. If verbally saying something out loud that insults the Holy Spirit is so horrible that it's unforgivable, then why does God only devote three verses to it in Matthew and two verses in Mark? The way God put the Bible together was awesome. Everything vitally important is mentioned not just once or twice, but countless times throughout the Bible. So why is a sin that is unforgivable only mentioned once? In these five little verses, I think the reason why is because our predetermined, preconceived notions of what the unforgivable sin actually is, is not accurate. So if blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means something other than what we commonly believe it to mean, then this isn't the only place in the entire Bible that it appears. Turn to John 3.16. The unforgivable sin is very important. And it is talked about all throughout the Bible. But the terminology that's so famous to us, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that terminology isn't used anywhere else. So we don't make the connection. But the act itself, that is the unforgivable sin, it is talked about all throughout the Bible. In John 3.16, Jesus told Nicodemus that God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that He even gave up His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal everlasting life. And that's a pinnacle verse of Christianity. But then right after that, in the very next verse, John 3.17, Jesus told Nicodemus that God didn't send his son into the world to judge it, but to save it. And then right after that in John 3.18, he said anyone who puts their trust in him to be the author of their salvation will not be judged. And that's pretty crucial, folks, because we tend to think that getting into heaven is about getting a passing grade after God judges us. But that's not the case. Jesus said the way to heaven is by escaping judgment altogether. And the only way to escape God's judgment is to not be in God's debt. From God's point of view, your debt is either paid off, paid in full, or it's not. There's no middle ground. We're not capable of paying off that debt. That's why Jesus became our balance transfer. Either your debt has been transferred over to Jesus, or it hasn't. That's why Jesus said that anyone who puts their trust in him will not be judged at all. Because there's no need to be hauled into court if there's no debt to pay off. There will be no judgment. But then right after that, still in John 3.18, Jesus said something about those who don't accept that balance transfer, who remain in God's death and disbelieve. Jesus told Nicodemus that they've been judged already. Can you be forgiven if you've been judged already? I don't think so. It says those who disbelieve have been judged already. And the word disbelieve in the original Greek there is active. In other words, it's done on purpose. They're not deceived. They know what they're doing. So don't confuse a passive disbelief out of ignorance or confusion with what Jesus is getting into here. And then right after that, in John 3, 19, Jesus told Nicodemus why they've been judged already and why they actively disbelieve. It's because the light has come into the world and they loved the darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. What did he mean by that? He's not talking about the regular Joe who just hadn't figured it out yet. Jesus is talking about a disbelief that is an active choice. They disbelieve on purpose. They're not deceived by a lack of information or even disinformation. They willfully deceive themselves. It's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. We may not see it, but God does. He knows the heart. That's why Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. He didn't say it in his mind. He said it in his heart, but by doing so he makes himself out to be a fool. His mind knows better, but his heart says otherwise, and then he shapes his mind to accept a lie, forcing his view of reality to be what his heart wants it to be, rather than what it actually is. Even when that lie is baseless, ridiculous, or absurd, the Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want him to be the Messiah. So they made themselves out to be fools, and they came up with this ridiculous, absurd lie that Jesus was only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. I mean, it's absurd. How could Satan cast out Satan? And why? I mean, the whole thing is absurd. So why does Jesus in Matthew call this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's because, according to John 16, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And it's the Holy Spirit's personal mission to declare and reveal the truth. And he never testifies of himself, but only testifies what he hears from the Father, and only honors and glorifies the Son. Had the Holy Spirit gotten through to these Pharisees? If he hadn't, then they were just deceived and actually believed that Jesus was possessed. And if that's the case, then warning people that Jesus is a fraud would be the right thing to do. Even though it would have been misguided to do that because they would be incorrect in their assessment, the intent and purpose would have been a good thing. My gosh, remember Paul? He was actively trying to wipe out Christianity, folks. He was trying to wipe out the church, the entire body of Christ, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But God knew he was deceived. So God straightened him out, and Paul became one of the biggest contributors to the New Testament. And all God said to him was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus knew that he was deceived. But notice with these Pharisees. Jesus doesn't say, Pharisees, Pharisees, why do you persecute me? No, he doesn't do that. Jesus is angry. Because these Pharisees know he's the Messiah, and they are actively choosing not to believe. They're unreachable, because technically they've already been reached. They've already been reached, but they chose to disbelieve. We don't pick up on that when we read about the unforgivable sin in Matthew and Mark because all we can see are their external actions. And those external actions, in their case, was verbally telling people that Jesus was only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. We make the assumption that these individual Pharisees were deceived and in their deception they went too far and blasphemed the Holy Spirit when they said that. But what they said was not their sin. Because it says Jesus made this entire rebuke to the Pharisees knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose. They actively chose not to believe in spite of what they knew to be true. They stood there knowing, knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, knowing he was casting out those demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. They stood in the presence of God himself in the flesh and accused him of being demon-possessed. That is what the unforgivable sin is, folks. That is what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It's not unforgivable because it's so horrible and so evil that even God in all of his love can't forgive it. It's unforgivable because the forgiveness itself that God offers is being purposely rejected. Now those of us who are already saved might ask, well, why would anybody want to do that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I would agree with you. But Jesus said they do it because they love the darkness more than the light. See, you can't love one thing more than something else unless you know about both. You can't hate one thing more than something else unless you know about both. It's an active choice. Let's look at Romans chapter 1 and read some of that chapter because Paul really expounds on this concept of purposefully rejecting the truth and it being an unforgivable sin. Let's start in verse 18. It says, God's wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their wickedness repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. See? You can't hinder the truth unless you first know what the truth is. So you can fight against it. Paul continues. It says, for that which is known about God is evident to them, and it's made plain in their inner consciousness because God himself has shown it to them. Wow! How did he do that? By the Holy Spirit, the one that John told us is the bearer of truth, who never testifies of himself, but only testifies of Jesus Christ and glorifies him. And when the Holy Spirit does that, he uses many tools. But Paul mentions the creation as a tool. Verse 20, it says, For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made. Therefore, men are without excuse. Because when they knew and recognized him as God, they did not honor and glorify him as God or give him thanks. But instead, they became futile in their thinking with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, stupid speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Now in Romans chapter 1, Paul here is talking about the Holy Spirit using the creation as a tool to communicate. You would think that biologists would be the very first group of scientists to recognize a creator. With all of their discoveries of microscopic machines, not chaotic globs of junk, but finely tuned machines. We'd call it artificial intelligence if we were to make stuff like that. But when they discover it, they come up with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, stupid speculation about how it all happened by itself through genetic mutation, which is just a fancy word for something that's become retarded, but its retardation actually makes things work better, so it becomes accepted. It's evolution, you see. If we were to create a machine that does the same thing a human body does, we would call ourselves geniuses. But when God does it, we say it happened by itself. Romans 1, verse 22, Paul continues and says, While claiming to be wise, they become fools. Now, Paul here is talking about how God uses the creation to communicate. But these Pharisees, they had more than the creation. They actually had Jesus standing right there in front of them, folks. What does God do with people who actively disbelieve like that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 24, God gives them up. He washes his hands of them and makes no more effort to get through because he's gotten through. And verse 25 tells it it's because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, being deceived isn't exchanging the truth for a lie. Being deceived is being deceived. But exchanging the truth for a lie is loving the darkness more than the light. Jesus said to Nicodemus that these people love the darkness more than the light. And in the original Greek, it means more than and instead of the light. Instead, they're making an exchange. These Pharisees loved the darkness more than and instead of the very light that was standing right there in front of them. That is why Jesus is really angry. He's not angry because they're stupid. He's not angry because they don't get it. He's angry because they do get it. And they have willfully chosen sides against him. Now, in Matthew's record of this statement, it records that Jesus said, All manner of every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not and cannot be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, either in this world and age or in the world and age to come. Now because of that last line there, some have made the conjecture that the unforgivable sin can't be committed unless Jesus is literally standing on the earth. Because they interpret this world and age as the time of Jesus' first coming. And they interpret world and age to come as the time of his second coming. And that makes a lot of sense. It really does. But once again... Let's be careful here, because if that's what that really means, then this is the only place we can find it. So let's don't pick up stuff like that and fly with it. That might be what this means, but we have to make sure that we're not trying to make it fit right here just to make it work without any confirmation elsewhere in the Scripture. Because I actually think it's Jesus' poetic way of just saying never, neither in this age or the age to come, not now, not ever. When we hear the phrase unforgivable, we're talking about an act in which the performer of that act has been judged already, and they cannot be forgiven. And that isn't just confined here, but all throughout the Bible, John chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, and several other places where it spells it all out. To actively disbelieve, you have to first bulldoze your way through the Holy Spirit to do it. You have to almost literally tackle him down to the ground, tie him up, and then step on the back of his head, pushing his face in the dirt to get away from him, folks. And that's exactly what these Pharisees have done. All of this started off with it saying, Jesus said to them, knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose. When they said, Jesus only cast out demons because he himself is demon possessed. What they said was not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's why they said it, that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And then he lets them have it. And he's not finished. Jesus continues these accusations against the Pharisees, and only Matthew, the shorthand expert, got it all recorded. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 37. Jesus says to them, Either make the tree sound and its fruit sound, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For a tree is known by its fruit. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be evil, be evil. You know, it'd be one thing if these were managers of a prostitution ring or something, but no, they're Pharisees, religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, make up your minds. He said, either make the tree sound and its fruit sound, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For a tree is known by its fruit. You offspring of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? See, they aren't stupid. They're not deceived. Jesus is really angry here because these Pharisees have shown themselves to be pure evil, wearing the clothes of religious leadership and claiming to be representatives of God to the people. And here they are lying to the people about who Jesus is, And knowing that's exactly what they're doing. You offspring of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. See? Problem is in the heart. The mouth is only the outward shoot for what's in the heart. For out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus continues and says, The good man from his inner good hurls forth good things. And the evil man out of his inner evil hurls forth evil things. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will have to give an account for every idle word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned and sentenced. Now here, Jesus is touching upon two things. If you're a Christian, there won't be a judgment against sin. All of those are going to be paid for, paid in full. But there will be a judgment seat of rewards for Christians. We talked about that before. Hell is no longer an issue. Sin is no longer an issue. But concerning rewards, what we do here and now matters as to how much and what kind of rewards we're going to get. And unfortunately, every idle word we've spoken will play a part in those judgments for rewards. But of those who are not saved, apparently there's different levels and degrees of punishment. And in that context... How much and what kind of eternal punishment the unsaved gets will partially hang on every idle word they've spoken. And the reason why is because it's out of the fullness of the heart that the mouth speaks. Now, what follows all of that should have been just absolute silence. But no, these evil Pharisees are not finished mocking after Jesus' perfect rebuke. I mean, it was flawless. They respond back to him with the following in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and 39. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we just desire to see a sign or a miracle from you proving that you are who you claim to be. But he replied to them, An evil and adulterous generation and a generation unfaithful to God seeks and demands a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Luke chapter 11, verse 29 to 30 records that Jesus said, No sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will also the Son of Man be a sign to this age and generation. What does that mean, folks? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 continues it. Says Jesus said, For even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is talking about the three days and three nights between the time he will die on the cross and the morning he will rise from the grave. That's what he's getting into, folks. Now, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and that's a neat little story all by itself. Nineveh had become so pagan and so lost that God told Jonah to warn Nineveh that if they didn't straighten up, God was going to wipe them out. And Jonah hated Nineveh for the very same reasons why God was going to wipe them out. So Jonah decided not to warn Nineveh. (laughs) Isn't that spooky? But then, of course, you know the story. God sent some kind of giant fish to swallow up Jonah. Nobody really knows what it was that swallowed him up. The King James called it a whale. More modern translations call it a great sea monster. The old language simply called it a great fish. Whatever it was, it was acting under direct orders from God, and it swallowed up Jonah for three days and nights while Jonah had time to think about the situation. So then he repented, and then the great fish threw him up on the shore, and Jonah went to Nineveh just like God told him to do. And then afterwards, Jonah went up on a hill to watch the fireworks. Oh boy, today's the day Nineveh gets wiped out. This is going to be fun. But something happened that Jonah didn't expect. Nineveh actually repented. From the king all the way down to the serpents. So God spared them. But there's a double meaning behind what Jesus is getting into here with this comparison. The Pharisees demanded a sign. And Jesus told them, here's your sign. Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, don't worry. You'll get your sign when you kill me and bury me, and three days later I show up again walking around like nothing happened.